All right, good morning. Our reading this morning is from Philippians chapters 2 and 3. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have obtained. Attained. Forgive me. Father, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you this morning um, in the midst of a a bit of chaos and uh, just unforeseen circumstances, and yet uh, we confess that you reign and that you are at work right now as we we sang uh, this morning, uh, that you're always working. And so we pray your blessing on our time together in your word and that you would work through it for your glory and for our good. And uh, that you would meet us, Lord, wherever you find us this morning, uh, whether we're full of doubts or shame, whether we're bored or apathetic, um, whether we're full of gratitude and excitement, uh, Lord, would you direct our hearts to Jesus and his kingdom, we pray in his name. Amen. Uh, We're continuing our series this morning uh, that is called We Believe, and we've been in this for, I think, this is the fifth week now. And uh, every week we've, we've said that this isn't a survey of everything we believe as a church or uh, all the beliefs of historic Christianity, and nor is it a deep dive into kind of the specifics of what it means to be Presbyterian and Reformed. Um, but rather, this is an attempt to try to unpack some of the core convictions uh, that support and actually energize our mission as a church. And that mission is to gather, grow, and go. And where we've been so far is uh, we have laid out a few things. We've said, we believe in the foolishness of the cross. We believe that Jesus is our righteousness. We believe that the church is God's family and the body that we need. And we believe, as we looked at last week, that the kingdom is a story bigger than ourselves and our lives are to be oriented around it. This morning, Uh, We're going to be talking about something a little different, but that connects to all those. And that is, we believe our holiness is a work in progress. 
Now, you might hear us say all the time at this church, everybody's in process, no one has arrived, and sometimes you think that's simply for those of you who don't yet believe uh, that we're trying to make space for you. You're exploring Christianity, wondering if you can believe it, and we say, it's okay, everybody's in process. And I just want to make clear that we mean that about you who do believe as well, that you haven't arrived, that you're not fully what God intends you to be, and nor am I. And so we need to unpack this a bit about what it means to be people in process and to understand that our holiness is a work in the making, that we're under construction. And I want to suggest to you that uh, every Christian has two very, very, very good friends. And uh, these two friends, they're very close. They always hang out together, but they're a little bit different. And those two friends to use theological speak, are named justification and sanctification. (laughs) Justification means Jesus is our righteousness, that we are declared right in God's sight by the work of Jesus and the work of Jesus alone. But sanctification means that Jesus is making us new. That our whole life is actually a process of Jesus making us holy. Both of these friends come from the hand of Jesus. Both of them flow from our union with Jesus Christ, and both are given to every single Christian. Justification is immediate. The moment you believe, you are declared righteous in God's sight. Sanctification takes a lifetime. Now, I've been pastoring in the Silicon Valley for 18 years now, and uh, I know what some of us think, and sometimes I think myself, which is, I really love this grace stuff. I really love forgiveness, because that means I don't have to do anything. But that's to completely misunderstand the gospel. Because God intends not only to forgive us, but to change us into the likeness of Jesus. We are actually part of God's renovation project. And here's the thing. To think that this means I don't have to do anything is also to misunderstand yourself. And this is what I mean. Whether you're a Christian or not, you're involved in some sort of renovation project. And you hear this all the time, especially around New Year's when all the resolutions are being made. But it's like we can't escape from it. And for many of us, it is simply a self-improvement program. And it goes like this. You have a goal. You want to lose weight. You want to get better skin. You want to get a healthier emotional life. And so you come up with a plan. And that plan has work to do. Eat better, exercise more, do therapy, apply creams and lotions, all the kind of stuff, right? And you have to stay focused on this. And not only is there a goal and there is a plan in which there is work to do, but there's an expectation about how long it will take. Uh, Maybe it's 12 days, right? 12 steps to the better you in 12 days or whatever. Uh, Maybe it's 30 days through the whole 30, you know, cleanse out that system. You're going to be on much better footing. Maybe it's six months. Maybe, Maybe it's a few years. But this structure is something that it's like we can't get away from. Even if we don't articulate it or write it out or say it to anybody else, right? We we're always involved in some sort of renovation project. For, for some of us, this program is called the Life Optimization Program. You know what I'm talking about? Where you're always trying to optimize your relationships. That's why some of you uh, can't ever settle down into one because uh, no one's ever good enough. You're always saying, maybe there's someone better out there. 
trying to optimize in your job, trying to optimize in your parenting. You're trying to optimize in your career path. And often these fears that seize us by the throat and create anxiety in us are really a signal revealing that something we're trying to optimize for feels threatened. And under the life optimization program, everything always feels threatened because nothing is ever good enough or you can't be sure that this is the most optimal way to go. And it is an exhausting and brutal way to live. Now look, I want to suggest to you this morning that the Christian life is both like and completely unlike our renovation projects. It's like them and that there are goals and there are plans and there are expectations and there are work, there's work to do. But it is unlike them in terms of the source of real change and the way it feels when you're actually really walking in holiness. And I want to talk about some of that this morning. So what I want to do is um, I want to give you four points to hang your head on. And the first one is this. Christian living, make no mistake, involves serious and hard work. Now, some of us love hearing that. We say, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. I'm so sick and tired of all those lazy, apathetic Christians. Get to work. But you need to remember something, right? Jesus and Jesus alone is our righteousness. But others of us, we're disturbed by hearing these words because we're like, wait, I thought Jesus did it all. What is this business about obedience and hard work? You see, we don't get to pick and choose which parts of Christianity we want to take and which parts we want to leave behind because they all are connected and are meant to be received together in Jesus. And this is what Paul writes in verse 12 of chapter 2 in the book of Philippians. Brothers, I urge you, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And that is as radical a call to obedience as there ever was one. And I want us to look at this and uh, pay careful attention to the language. Because we first need to see what this isn't saying. It doesn't say work for your salvation. Like you're working for a promotion or working for a degree. Only one person worked for your salvation and his name is Jesus. Nor does it say work on your salvation. Like you're working on your car or you're working on your house. It's something to fix up and improve. It's not work for and it's not work on. What it is saying is work out your salvation. And maybe the closest analogy uh, we can have to this is it's like living out your vows in marriage. You are completely married the day you promise yourself to someone else. But there is a lifetime of exploration and enjoyment and discovery and suffering that really teases out what those promises truly mean. Work out your salvation means you got to learn to apply it thoroughly. You got to weave it into the whole of your life. You got to flesh it out in the details, in your job, in your home, as a single person, as a wife, as a husband, as a mother, as a father, as a grandparent, as a grandchild, right? You apply the gospel everywhere, even in your suffering. And this takes effort. It takes hard work. And let me be clear, those aren't curse words in the Christian vernacular. Sometimes we think because we talk about Jesus did it all, all to him, I owe, that therefore it's 
somehow detracting from that when we talk about the work that we're called to. But you see, there's multitudes of daily decisions that you and I make every day, whether to follow Jesus or not, whether to apply the gospel or not. There is no casual Christianity that is just fit Jesus in when convenient. Call on him in a jam. It's having your whole life involved in working out the implications of your salvation. And it flies in the teeth of both laziness and apathy. And Paul's words actually ratcheted up a little bit. He says, this is to be done with fear and trembling. Now, <clears throat> the Greek sounds like Yoda, okay? This is how it sounds. With fear and trembling, the salvation that is yours, work it out. It's a terrible, terrible, terrible imitation. But nevertheless, it is how it reads in the Greek. And, and I, want us to, I want us to focus in on this for a second because I don't think Paul is saying you need to you need to live with an anxious and nervous doubt of God's favor and acceptance. It's an idiom. And it's an idiom that expresses radical dependence on God in view of one's own weaknesses and frailties. And it's actually a signal that what you're dealing with here is something really, really important. You see, salvation is is not like learning to play the guitar, okay? Not much rides on that. It's more like learning to be a wife or a husband or a mom or a dad. You're like, I could do a lot of damage if I'm a lousy wife or husband. I can do a lot of damage if I'm a lousy mom or dad. I don't want to trivialize this salvation. The fear and trembling is a signal that this is the most important thing. And it involves serious and hard work to apply it. The gospel calls us to work out, flesh out, live out our salvation in every part of our lives. And I want to make two points about this before moving on. And the first is this, you can't do this alone. You know, the command is actually plural in the Greek. All the yous are y'alls, to use the superior Southern dialect in this respect. Y'all work out your salvation together. You need each other to do this. You need the church Sanctification takes place in the context of a community called the church. It's one of the reasons why we have community groups and affinity groups, by the way. These are sanctification centers where we learn to work out our salvation and apply it to all the areas of our lives. And we do it together. And the second thing is, is if the church is a place where we're working it out, it means it's going to get messy. It's not a neat and clean process. But if we are working out our salvation and all its implications in the way that the New Testament calls us to, for example, the way Paul writes in this letter, learning to count others more significant than ourselves, not grumbling or complaining, which Paul says right after this passage, rejecting rivalry and conceit, all in imitation of Jesus's self-surrender, that's going to make it a beautiful mess. The Christian life involves serious and hard work we got to get to work. But it's one thing to know what you're supposed to do. It's another thing to actually do it. And here I want to speak to some of you who may feel like a bit of burnouts right now. And some of you maybe have been dropouts from the Christian life and you're just kind of returning. There's this sense, you're like, I've tried Christianity and it doesn't work for me. And I want to just suggest that maybe what you've tried is not Christianity, but moralism. And call that Nike 
Christianity. Just do it. It all depends upon your effort, your discipline, your commitment. It all ends up either crushing you or making you a big fat fake. But the obedience the gospel calls us to is of an entirely different order. And it draws on a very different power than just our willpower. Yes, we work, but here's the second thing. Our work is grounded in his work. Look at verse 13 of chapter 2. Right after Paul says, work out your salvation, he says this, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God is working in you. And there's this delicate balance that's struck in the connection of verse 12 and 13. And it's not about dividing up, here's our part and here's God's part, but it's about grounding our work in his. We work because he's working in us. And some of us have a hard time with this. We don't feel like we see him working. We don't feel him working, but he is. He's promised. He's working in your life right now, determined to change you, determined to grow you, determined to conform you to the image of Jesus. He isn't distant and far away. He's right here, intimately involved in the details of your life. We just sang about that with that lovely uh, hymn that Jess included in our worship service. He is working. He never stops. He never stops. And it says he is working both your own willing and working. He is behind your desiring and doing. Every hint of repentance in your heart, every godly inclination, every good deed is a fruit of his working in you and in us. And he does it out of sheer grace. It is, Paul writes, for his good pleasure. He delights to do this. Doesn't that give you confidence? Does that give you encouragement? And maybe you can feel like all is dark and all is lost. This connection between verse 12 and 13, we work because God is at work, is so important. Because on the one hand, it keeps us from laziness. We don't just say, I'm just going to sit around until he changes me. He says, I have things I want you to do. I have you participate in this process. But on the other hand, it keeps us from despair. When we fail again and again and again, he is working no matter how slow, no matter how subtle, no no matter how hidden, because that's what he does. We work because God is working in us. This call to obedience is empowered by the work of God in us. And this is the third thing I want to talk about. The Christian life involves serious and hard work, but we work because God is at work in us. And yet the Christian life is a marathon, not a sprint. If you look at uh, chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, which is the next part of the passage there, Paul, Paul draws on an image or a metaphor, describing himself as a runner whose aim is to finish the race and receive the prize. And his words signal that this is a long distance run, not a quick sprint. Sorry for all you sprinters out there, right? This is what he writes, verse 12. Not that I have already obtained all this or I'm already perfect. What he's saying is I haven't crossed the finish line. But two times he says, I press on. I press on. I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul is saying, I haven't arrived yet. I don't have it all together. I'm still a work in progress. Because the Christian life 
is a marathon that lasts a lifetime. None of us have it all together. None of us have arrived. All of us have to press on. You know, while the goal is the same for everyone, and we'll look at that in just a second, it is worth saying that everyone's path is a little bit different. Right? The path of the recovering crack addict is a little different than the path of the recovering moralist. Different challenges we face, right? different obstacles that we encounter, different temptations, different circumstances, different conditions in which we run. But make no mistake, it's a long distance race and it's one that lasts a lifetime. As one person put it, you've been given a whole new way to live and it will take your whole life to live it. So how do we run well? This Christian life that's a marathon, not a sprint? Well, think about marathoners for a second. You don't ever see anybody running a marathon with cowboy boots on or high heels. Nobody's carrying a cooler, you know, full of Bud Light or toting a barbecue grill, you know, with them. You know, that's not, people are in very thin, very light clothing, sometimes obscenely short shorts. This is a metaphor, by the way. Uh, it's, it, it's a signal that I don't want to be weighed down. I need to get rid of the baggage. And this is what Paul says. I press on in this way, forgetting what lies behind. You know, you can't get bogged down in your past failures or hurts. Shame can be like a 50-ton weight that you carry on your shoulders. Paul had a past that needed forgetting. He did a lot of terrible things. And he had some terrible things done to him. But he refused to let those define and direct his life. Many of us, similarly, we have things that need forgetting. Things we've done, things that have been done to us. And this isn't a call to denial or minimization. Sometimes we got to work through some stuff. And sometimes we got to take some responsibility for things. But learning to faithfully forget is refusing to let those define and direct your life. You can't get tangled up in your past failures or hurts. You know what else you can't get tangled up in? You can't get tangled up in your past successes and wins. That's where pride grows. And it's also where apathy grows. And that's why Paul said, all this that I had worked for, I flush it down the toilet to trade it for knowing Jesus and his death and his resurrection. So Paul says... In this marathon life, I am straining forward to what lies ahead. I keep my eyes on the prize, which comes from the call of Jesus on my life. And it brings a laser-like focus to everything. It creates this spiritual intensity in him that is completely caught up in having Jesus define and direct his life. Not his past failures or hurts, and not his past successes and wins. You know, I think so much here speaks directly to our common struggles in the Christian life in the Silicon Valley. You know, some, some of us are spiritual coasters, okay? We, we have a tendency to shift into neutral and just kind of coast along. And it could be because of apathy. Maybe in this moment, you're like, I just don't really care right now. Or it could be laziness. I don't really feel like it, or that seems like a lot of work, right? But this is to dishonor the call of Jesus on your life. As we confessed earlier in our liturgy, we're called to live a life that honors the call of God on our lives. 
Live a life worthy of the gospel that you've received. We're called to work out our salvation. Apply it thoroughly. We're called to press on. The reason is because God not only wants to forgive us, he wants to change us, right? This moves against spiritual coasting. But you know what else it moves against? Spiritual ADD. There's others of us, like, we just lose our focus all the time. We're distracted by so many other things. We're chasing so many other prizes. And Paul actually uses some pretty forceful, strong language in verses 17 and 18. And notice he says, I'm telling you this with tears. Yeah, there are other prizes to pursue. There are other races to run, but these are a dead-end street. And they are often driven by our basis appetites for pleasure, for comfort, for money, for power, for fame, earthly gains and earthly rewards. Don't be taken along. Don't let spiritual ADD ruin you. And you know, I think if it's not spiritual coasting or spiritual ADD, I think the rest of us at times experience what we, what we might call spiritual fatigue. You know what that is? That's, that's when you say, I'm, I'm tired. I don't know if I can do this anymore. And when fatigue sets in, you lose your intensity. But I want you to notice the dynamic that animated Paul. Go back to verse 12. I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. His spiritual intensity wasn't the result of his personality or just trying really hard. He says, I press on because I've been pressed upon. I seek to lay hold of because I've been laid hold of. I long to grasp because something has grasped me. I've been the object of spiritual intensity and it has turned me into a person of spiritual intensity. Something grabbed hold of Paul that is drawing his life again and again in one direction. And that was the love of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, a few weeks ago, we looked at verse 10, just right before this in chapter three. Uh, where after Paul had rejoiced in the fact that Jesus is his righteousness, goes on to say that his life is now consumed with this one thing, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Friends, grace does not eliminate effort in the Christian life. It energizes it. Because when you rest in Jesus as your righteousness, you actually begin to run the race in non-anxious and non-nervous ways. And it begins to deal with that fatigue that sets in. The verdict has already been passed over you. I want to know more of this Savior. And the goal is this, knowing him and being conformed to his likeness. And that's the last thing I want to talk about. The goal is Christ-likeness, not an idealized version of yourself. I mean, many of us are way more fascinated with our Enneagram number than we are with Jesus. And many of us are busy running all kinds of races besides the one that seeks to know Jesus. We're seeking the promised land. And that promised land lies at the top or in the geography of self-actualization or in the country of comfort and ease which is another way of saying we're trying to establish our own kingdom. But the Christian race is towards Jesus and the kingdom that he brings. Paul writes in verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven 
And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know what he's saying? He's saying, I am running with focus and intensity because I know how the story ends. It ends with Jesus returning and making all things new. He even says in verse 21 that he's going to transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. That's how comprehensive this thing is. Even our bodies are going to be made new. We will be made beautiful in every conceivable way as we are conformed to the likeness of Jesus Christ. Knowing how it ends gives us hope and endurance no matter what comes in life. And it's not just wishful thinking. It's rooted in the resurrection of Jesus. That nothing, not even death, can stop God's purposes from being realized. You know, I had a, a text exchange this past week with, with someone who asked me this question. How much control do we have over our own sanctification? Like is sanctification a kind of Christian self-improvement program? And I really like this question. And you want to you know why? Because I think a lot of us wonder the same thing. And I, I said something like this in response. That's a very interesting question. I would rather cast it in terms of our responsibility rather than our control. Because we are responsible in the process of sanctification. We're responsible to repent and to believe and to obey and, wait for it, to rest in Jesus as our righteousness. And we must always remember, right, that God himself has committed himself to this process too. A little earlier in Philippians, Paul writes that God is the one who began this work in us and he will be faithful to complete it, which means... Sometimes he is working with us and through us as we participate. And sometimes he is working against us when we don't. And all of it is because he loves us and wants us to be made new. The difference between this and a self-improvement program are manifold. But one crystal clear difference is this. The goal of most self-improvement programs is some idealized conception of yourself. David the Great, right? That, that's, that's what's animating that, right? Well, the goal of sanctification is being transformed in the likeness of Jesus. So this text exchange I'm having uh, with this, with this uh, person, uh, there's a follow-up question. And I love this one too. It says, so if we do our best, God picks up the slack? And this is my answer, nah, God is working all along the way when we're at our best and even when we're at our worst. Friends, that's the Christian life. It is better than you could possibly imagine. Yeah, it calls you to work, but it calls you to work out a salvation that has been given to you. And it calls you to do this with others in the context of a community called the church. And it's about something bigger and better than your own idealized version of yourself getting actualized or you building your own little kingdom, which we know over and over again just crumbles beneath our feet. It's as big as the cosmos, the cosmos that God has promised to renew. And I wanna close with a story that I think gets a heart, at the heart of the dynamic of uh, sanctification. And you can think of this as like a parable, but this is actually a true story from a friend of mine named Ricky Jones. No relation, by the way. And it's a story about how Judgment Day for a Christian will be like the first Christmas that Ricky ever bought a present for his mom. Listen to this. This is what Ricky says. 
I was in fourth grade, the youngest of my family, and I was tired of just drawing pictures from my mom while the rest of my siblings bought her gifts. However, there were a few things getting in the way of actually buying her something nice. I didn't have any money. I didn't have any way to go to the store on my own. I didn't actually know what she wanted, and I didn't know how to wrap a Christmas present. Not knowing how to get around all those obstacles, I resorted to moping and sulking around the house. My mother noticed and asked if something was wrong. I told her something about not being able to buy Christmas presents for people, and she nodded, filing that information away for later. That week, she looked out the window and said, look at all those sticks in the yard. I sure wish somebody would pick them up for me. I'd pay $10 for somebody to move these sticks. I hurried outside and collected all the sticks, which by the way, was my responsibility anyhow, as part of my weekly chores. But just this once, my mother paid me for it. After the yard was clean, I was thanked and given $10. And she said, I'm going to the store to do a little shopping. Would you like to come? Of course I would. On the way there, she mentioned she'd seen some necklaces and wished she could have one. The necklaces were $9. I picked one out, brought it up to the counter, paid for it, and put it in a bag. As soon as we got home, I raced back into my bedroom and started wrapping. The only box I could find was huge, and I tore through an entire roll of wrapping paper. No matter which way I cut, it didn't fit. So I started crying, and I brought the box out to my mother. She wrapped it for me, making it look easy, and I placed it under the tree. Christmas finally came. I went to the Christmas tree to retrieve the present that my mother had paid for, picked out, drove me to get, and wrapped. My mother unwrapped the box that she had wrapped, clasped the necklace around her neck, and hugged me in what felt like the biggest hug in the history of hugs. She said, I love it. Thank you so much. It was just what I wanted. She was so delighted to see how much I wanted to give her a gift, and I was so delighted to see her so pleased. She was overjoyed to see me happy, and both of us were caught in that spiral of delight. Friends, that is what Judgment Day is going to be like for us. We're going to bring all of our good works to our Father, and He's going to remember every one of them. Every glass of water we gave to a child in His name, every single good intention we ever had, and He's going to embrace us in an enormous hug and thank us. Thank us even though he was the one who made all of the sacrifices to bring us into his presence. He will thank us. That is how delighted he is in us. Friends, that's the Christian life. We are called to work this out in every conceivable way, all the time, everywhere. But it is God who is at work in us and through us. And it is God on that great day is gonna actually rejoice in our frail, faltering, fickle efforts that he has summoned forth. And we will be embraced in the biggest hug of all hugs because that's who God is and that's how he works. Friends, this is at the heart of what it means to live as a Christian. And it's connected to all the things we've been talking about the past few weeks. The church is a community that gathers around the foolishness of the cross, where we receive Jesus as our righteousness and are set on a path of growing in holiness over a lifetime, where we are filled in the context of this community to go out and empty ourselves for a kingdom, not our own, 
but a kingdom that we all need. And next week, we're going to look at how all of this is under the direction of Scripture, which is God's word to us. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the way it bears fruit in our hearts. And we pray that your spirit would tend to it in our lives right now and that you would minister the gospel to us and that your grace would actually energize our effort. Uh, That where we have been fatigued um, and worn down, uh, we would find our heart renewed in uh, the intensity of your love for us. Um, Where we are coasting in uh, laziness or apathy, Lord, uh, that you would remind us what we've been given in the gospel and the call on our lives to work out our salvation everywhere. And God, where we're distracted and uh, focusing on other things, and uh, seeing our lives being driven uh, in, a, in a chase of other prizes, Lord, um, would you call us back? Would you help us once again to experience your love and your favor and your forgiveness? And that we renew our hearts uh, for a life of obedience and service and sacrifice. Uh, we need you to do this in us. And we trust that you are working even now. And we pray that your work would enable us to, to work well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.